Um, good morning once again. I'm Pastor Paul. If, if I'm moving a little gingerly this morning, um, you just need to know that one of our family members had the very bright idea to do an impromptu yoga session in our living room last night. And so as we enter Thanksgiving week, I can assure you, I am not thankful, not even one bit about that time. Anyway, open your Bibles this morning to Genesis chapter 50. It's hard to believe, church family, but we are now 20 months and 50 some odd sermons from the kickoff of this series that we did in early 2019, 20 months, 50 sermons later. And so this morning we are officially wrapping up our study through Genesis. Interestingly enough, we began with creation, those first couple of chapters, but here when we get to the end of Genesis 50, we, we end with a, interestingly enough, a coffin. And we want to find out what that's all about, what it has to do with our lives, why in fact it's at the center of our foundation of of hope as believers. So I'm going to read Genesis chapter 50 for us. If you don't have your Bibles, you can follow along on the screen behind us. Let's listen, church family, to God's word. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it, for that is how many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him seventy days. And when the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, I am about to die. In my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan, there you shall bury me. Now, therefore, let me please go up and bury my father. Then I will return. And Pharaoh answered, go up, bury your father as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father. With him went all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as the household of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's household. Only their children, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. When they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and grievous lamentation. And he made a mourning for his father seven days. When the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning on the threshing floor of Atad, they said, this is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. Therefore, the place was named Abel Mizraim, It is beyond the Jordan. Thus his sons did for him as he had commanded them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field at Machpelah to the east of Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. And after he buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgressions of your brothers and their sins because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. 
His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years, and Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Micah, the son of Manasseh, were counted at Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Let's pray. Lord, we have promises, ironclad eternal promises in this word that we are reading this morning, your word. And Lord, we confess as your people, we need them just as much as the family of God, of Jacob and Joseph, as his brothers. We need them just as much as they did 3,500 years ago, now, today. And so, Father, we pray that you would peel back the curtains from our hearts and open our eyes to see amazing truths that have the power to transform. Lord, we ask for your help now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I thought about calling this message, No Weddings and Two Funerals, something crafty like that. Went went, went from creation to coughing, went with that. Because it is peculiar, is it not, to reach the conclusion of this book and have death be so prominent. We have these, these two descriptive tales of what they did with Jacob and Joseph's body. And we have to ask, why? Why does Moses put what we would kind of see as uh, superfluous details about death and dying into this conclusion of his master narrative in the book of Genesis? And the reason, I think, in a word is hope. You see, each person's, meaning Jacob and Joseph, each person's instructions for their funerals, for their bodies, reflects something fundamental, a a, a fundamental belief, a fundamental trust that each of them has in the promises of God. You see, for Jacob, when he tells him to go deposit his corpse into the land, it's not because there is some kind of magic mojo in the dirt, right? That this is some sort of kind of pet cemetery action where whatever you bury comes back alive sort of thing. Rather, it's a symbolic statement so that when the people of Israel were walking around and they would say, well, where is Father Father Jacob's grave? We don't see his grave here in Egypt. They would say, oh, Father Jacob, he's in the promised land. You see, he was so certain of the promises of God to give you that land, he said, I'm going on ahead. He said, I'm gonna, I'm, I'm, it's a fait accompli. I am so certain of the promises of God that he is going to be faithful to what he has promised. I will be waiting on you there. 
Now, for Joseph, he had a little different tact. See, he didn't say, take me back to Canaan. He said, leave my body right here in the desert sand of Egypt. And leave me here until that day that God calls all of you to return to Canaan. Then bring me up with you. You see, Jacob was trusting in the promises that God had made about the land. Joseph was trusting in the promises that God had made about his people. See, that he would gather up his people first and then take them out. And these two promises wed together were the hope of all Israel. See, they would walk by Joseph's grave, and and it had to be a mighty grave. This was King Tut all the way, right? This was a sepulcher. This was gold. This was in all the tradition of the ancient Egyptians. And they would look at that, and it would be a visible reminder to the people of God, this is not our home. That one day God is going to call us out of here. He's going to be faithful to his promises, and we are going to, to carry Joseph right along with us when we return. Now, here's the question for us this morning, church. This is where we want to go. What was the, the key? What was the linchpin, so to speak? What was the underlying theological, biblical conviction that both father and son had that would give them such hope? What was it? In a word, I think it was providence. Now, let me just spend a minute or two as we dive into the text talking about the difference between sovereignty and providence. Both are words that we use here a lot at Four Oaks. It's helpful from time to time to remember what we mean when we talk about them. Sovereignty simply means this. Sovereignty is the absolute right and prerogative of God to do what he wants, when he wants, how he wants, with whomever he wants. Did we give it enough, cover enough bases there? You get, you get the idea? God's in charge. God does what he sees as all his holy will, what is for his good, what is for our good, his power, his authority to do whatever he ordains might happen. Sovereignty, I mean, providence, on the other hand, is a subset of sovereignty, and it simply means this. It speaks to the purpose and design that God has in his sovereignty. So in other words, God is not just willy-nilly from on high decreeing and doing whatever he wants. Everything that he does is done with a purpose, is done with a design, is done with a specific intention, a specific purpose, particularly, and this is so important, as it relates to the future of his people. So we want to take a dive into providence this morning and two points for us, okay? Two points. Here we go. First of all, we're going to talk about the psychology of providence and secondly, the theology of providence. So the psychology of providence, the theology of providence. Let's, let's get the first, psychology first. It tells us that, that Jacob died when he was 147 years old. This means it's been 17 years, right? since the brothers and Joseph had been reunited. Now, you remember the whole Joseph story, which we've been in this, this past season. So Joseph had been sold into slavery. He had been in Egypt 20 years. The brothers thought he was dead. They visited Egypt. Joseph revealed himself. He was the second most powerful man in the world. And at that reunion, which had been 17 years prior to this, 
Remember what happened. Remember how the, the brothers were, were terrified. They had stabbed their brother in the back, literally, and they didn't know what Joseph was going to do, and so they begged his mercy. And, and what a beautiful story it's been, right? Joseph reassured them. Joseph forgave them. Joseph loved them. He provided for them. But now, right, the circumstances have changed. The old man has died and gone to be with the Lord, and the brothers are terrified. Now that dad's restraining hand is not here, what's little brother going to do to us? It's kind of like the godfather, you know, where Fredo betrays his older brother, Michael, who's the head of the family. He begs forgiveness, and remember, Michael stays his hand, right? But only until after the matriarch, the mother, dies, then he sends Fredo on a fishing expedition, and Fredo ends up sleeping with the fishes. Remember this, right? So, so this, is, this is a replay. This is a reset of that. That's the fear of the brother. So they concoct a story, and just reading it, you know it's baloney. You know no such conversation ever happened. It sounds so middle school, right? Dad told us to tell you to tell him to let us go out tonight. I mean, it has that, that feel to it, right? In other words, Joseph, before Dad died, he kind of just basically said, no harm, no foul, right? Just, just, just move along. Let bygones be bygones. Now, obviously, fanciful, there's no record of that. It sounds far-fetched because I think it is. But where I think this is particularly informative, though, is, where this, is what this fanciful concoction, this tale that they invent to tell Joseph, what's interesting about it is what it reveals about the brothers emotionally, what it reveals about them psychologically, what it reveals about them spiritually. You can just tell the parlor of shame and guilt still hangs over them from 17 years, doesn't it? They are guilt-ridden. They just have that sense of impending doom. You know that feeling when you, when you go to bed with doom and you wake up and you feel such hopelessness, such despair? They had to be secretly wishing in their hearts, you know, we love, we're thankful for Joseph and everything, but we kind of hope Joseph goes to be with the Lord before dad does, right? Because we, we, we are living in abject terror of what Joseph is going to do for us. So they concoct this tale, and the messenger comes, the text tells us, and narrates this. And then it says something very interesting happens. It says that Joseph does what? It says he weeps. He weeps. Now, let's go back, I think, to understand this. Let's go back to Genesis 45, and let's think about that initial encounter some 17 years prior where Joseph had revealed himself to his brothers. And let's remind ourselves what Joseph had told them at that time. Genesis 45. Remember, this is the, the very first meeting they had. So Joseph said to his brothers, now listen to this, come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. 
So it was not you who sent me here, but God. Why is Joseph weeping? I think he's weeping, church, because his heart is broken for his brothers. He sees their spiritual anguish. He sees their struggles. It's obvious to him that they've been suffering under this burden for so long. And he feels this deep, I think, deep love and empathy for them because, and here's the key, he's already forgiven them. He's already accepted them. He's already provided for them. He's brought them near. I mean, you can just see in his heart Joseph saying, but brothers, look what I've done for you. Look what I've done. Not only have have I voiced forgiveness and reconciliation, but I've acted it out. I brought you in. I provided for your families. I've settled you in the primest part of land. I have, I, I've given you all the blessings that I have to give you as my family. Yet here they are, acting like slaves, not like sons. Acting like serfs and not like brothers. And boy, this is a great reminder to us, even for us who are Christians, who are trusting in Christ for the forgiveness of sin. That's the power of the psychology of sin. See, sin just doesn't deceive us about right and wrong and what's wise and unwise, but it deceives us about who we really are. See, as Christians, when we succumb to what Paul Tripp calls spiritual amnesia, in other words, We forget who we are. It's always a sure sign that we have forgotten who we are in Christ when we just can't get past that thing. Do you know what I mean? Like like that thing that happened way back and you know like you've been forgiven and God's restored you and your heart and maybe even relationally, but it just lingers over your soul. There's just a, a sense of dread, a sense of shame, a sense of sort of dark regret, that thing that's kind of swirling in your heart that you can't even voice because it just brings back so many painful memories. See, we all live in that place, don't we? That thing we just can't get peace about, that thing we just, we don't, we, we know in our head that we're forgiven, but we don't experience forgiveness. We can't let it go because we have forgotten, as the brothers have, fundamentally who we are. Very interesting what Joseph does at this very point. This is so instructive for us as believers. If you find yourself in that place this morning, this is so instructive. What does Joseph do? He simply rehearses God's word and truth to them one more time. I mean, you, see, th- this is what God, God does for us, right? You, just, you, you sense the, the heart of Jesus saying, my son, my daughter, oh, don't you know? I know you're wretched and I know you've sinned and broken hearts and all those sorts of things, but, but don't you know? how much I love you? Don't you know that I died to pay your penalty for that sin and for the consequences of those sins? Don't you know? And so this is Joseph. And so he reminds them, he, he, he rehearses for them one more time the promises. Look at verse 19. But Joseph said to them, and he wants to make this crystal clear, doesn't he? Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? 
As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. See, they've heard it before, but it's so easy to forget. How instructive for us as believers, guys, of how important it is that we are regularly, constantly, continually going back to the Word of God, meditating on it, reminding ourselves, rehearsing what it says to us. And when we feel like we're the brothers and we have really forgotten who we are and we've drifted to that place, it's a sure sign that the promises of God have failed in that moment to secure our hearts, just like they did with these brothers. See, we're spiritual amnesiacs and we have to be reminded. And brothers and sisters, if you were in Christ this morning, and you have placed your faith in Christ and are trusting in him, just know that God has never stopped forgiving you, providing for you, working out his will for you. Even if you doubt this morning that he's doing that, guess what? He's doing it anyway. See, that's the power of the gospel. And which is why our theology, in other words, what we believe about God is really the foundational rock of our faith. Because if you have a hazy theology this morning, you're going to have a really hazy certainty. If, you're, if you have an ambiguous theology about God, you're going to have a very ambiguous thinking about God. If you have a wavering theology of God, you are going to have a wavering faith in God. Because I am convinced that what has made this season so difficult for the church of Christ here in America, here around the world. It's not that we have confessionally forgotten about the providence of God. Oh, no, no, no. We, we, we believe that. We read our Bibles. We, we, we hear it preached. We, we, we get it here. But at a street level, at a functional level, the providence of God no longer holds the weight it should in our hearts and lives. We have failed to appropriate it. We have forgotten not only who we are, but we have forgotten who God is. And we need a weight. We need a spiritual weight. We need spiritual gravitas to hold us tight in the dark days ahead. And this is what we see in the second point. Let's look a little more closely at what anchored Joseph and Jacob as it relates to God's providence, the theology of such. Let me read the verse again. I think this verse is not simply the title verse to this part of the series, God Meant Good. I think it's the theme of all of Genesis. Let me read the verse and let me, let me explain this. Genesis 50, 20. As for you, Joseph to the brothers... You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Church, let's remember where we began this journey 20 months ago in this book, where we saw the sovereign hand of God creating the heavens and the earth and creating mankind and creating mankind to as in his image, to glorify him, to populate the earth, to live in worship and communion with him, 
But by Genesis 3, we know that things are a mess. We know that there's brokenness, that man began to ask questions like, did God really say? And that this beautiful God, creation that God had made was thrown into rebellion and sin and brokenness and suffering and misery. But we saw right from Genesis 3.15, it was at that moment that God began to go to work. God began to go to work to reclaim the people of God for himself, to begin to repair what was wrong, to fix what was broken. And he promised Eve, there is going to be a seed that comes from your line that's going to rise up and is going to crush Satan, is going to defeat sin and death once and for all. And what we've seen all through Genesis is the the singular theme that's woven its way through is how God is faithful to preserve that seed. First, it was through the line of Seth, and then it was through the line of Enoch, and then Noah, and then Shem, and then we on into Abraham. Remember Abraham, the promises to Abraham. And then Abraham, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless your seed. I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to raise up a promised Messiah. And then it was to Isaac and the Jacob. It was finally, as we saw last week, then to Judah. But see, when we come to Genesis 37, there is a real crisis here. You see, the seed, by virtue of this famine that's sweeping the world, is is threatened with its very extermination. And not only is is there physical extermination facing the people of God, there's spiritual extermination. Remember, this is right around the time where the the sons, the brothers have this bright idea to sell their, their father's favorite son into slavery. And we see all the division and the chaos and the murder that have infected the family of God and they are scattered and they are without hope. But yet, what we've learned in Genesis 37 through 50, that it is through this very treachery of the brothers that God saves the brothers. What you meant for evil, brothers, God meant for good. Now, that word for meant, it literally means to make or to fabricate or to put together, or I like this word a lot, to weave. So, so, so insert that word in there. What you w- have woven together for evil, brothers, God has woven together for good. It's interesting, that word for meant, it's the same word used both times in relationship to the evil acts of the brother and, listen, the providential sovereign acts of God. So notice what this text does not say. And this is so important for us as autonomous individuals who think we are masters of our own fate, who think we are the decisive, um, our choice is always the decisive point in the lives of other people when it's not. Notice what it doesn't say. It does not say, you meant it for evil, God used it for good. It doesn't say you meant it for evil, then God pivoted and kind of did some spiritual jujitsu, right, and kind of worked it out in the end. It doesn't say you meant it for evil, but God kind of came in behind you and cleaned up and made the best of a really bad situation. It does not say that. What it says is, what it, what it means is God to the brothers, you had a design and purpose in your treachery, brothers, and that was to kill me. But you know what? 
God had another, greater, grander design and purpose in your treachery. You didn't even know it, but he used it to save you. See, that's God's providence. And, 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 and this has such a functional, pastoral, hope-filled place in our hearts and lives because let's not forget the whole context of this story. See, the whole context here, remember, is what? Forgiveness. See, the, the brothers are afraid that Joseph really doesn't forgive them and that he is going to enact revenge. So we have to ask, what is it about this? What is it about Joseph that empowered him to forgive? What empowered Joseph not to be angry with God? What empowered Joseph not to be angry with his brothers? Because it wasn't because he was in denial. It wasn't simply because he swept it under the rug, let bygones be bygones. It's because he had a firm, resolute belief and trust in the providence of God. He said, how could I take revenge upon you? How could I still be angry? How could I, how could I turn my back on you? And there, here's what he says, I am in the place, am I in the place of God? See, a trust in God's providence frees us, church. It frees us to trust. It frees us to forgive. It, it, it frees us to release. It frees us to have faith. Let me ask you a question. What are you feeling? And I know to come up with a feeling for some of you might be a stretch, okay? But how are you feeling about the last 10 months? Like, what would be your dominant emotion? Are you embittered? Angry? Are you fearful? Are you anxious? I'm not positive, but I'm pretty sure those aren't fruits of the Spirit. You with me? Okay. Are you walking in despair or cynicism? Can I just gently pastorally push in a little bit here and say, if, if, that's, if that's sort of the dominant themes of your heart and your emotion that maybe, just maybe somewhere along the way, you've lost sight of Genesis 50-20. In the all-encompassing providence of God, his promise to do what is ever best for those whom he loves who've been called according to his purposes. Now, one of the great promises of Scripture is obviously Romans 8, 28. We overuse it sometimes as believers. Um, I think we underuse it here in this context if we don't hold this up. And when I say overuse it, what I mean is we just sort of flippantly toss it at different things and circumstances and kind of use it as a mantra without really thinking about what it means. The Romans 8.28 says this, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, all things. Notice that it doesn't, please don't hear what Paul's not saying. Paul does not say all things are good. Guys, treachery is not good. Getting thrown into a pit and lying to your father for 20 years is not good. Slavery isn't good. Abuse is not good. That's not what Paul's saying. Paul is saying that 
in those very things, it is actually God actively working decisively for our very good through those very things that we think are not for our good. I mean, can you imagine the brothers, if we only get rid of Joseph, we will have life. And how right they were. And they didn't even know it. God says, I'm going to just totally and sovereignly impose myself on that situation, and I'm going to show you what's for your good. See, the reason we as believers can stake our lives on Genesis 50-20 is because this is the very same actions that God carried out in the life of his own son. Acts 2, Peter is preaching. Now listen to this. And can I just encourage you, don't go philosophical on me right here. Don't, don't try to, but, but, but just, just hear what Peter says. Acts 2, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Guys, the death of son of the Son of God was not happenstance response to your rebellion to my rebellion. Paul tells us it was planned before the foundations of the world. Revelation said it was the lamp, the book of the Lamb of God that was slain was 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 decreed before the foundation of the world. And this is, this is a point of great hope for us, that if God laid down his son and raised him up for you, then of course, when he lays you down, when he slays you, when he brings you low, when he humbles you, of course, he's going to raise you up. Because that's why he sent his son in the first place. Folks, where do you need the eyes of faith to have Genesis 50, 20 appropriated to your heart. Understand, I didn't say if you need it, because we all do. I said, where do you need it? Because we all need it. Folks, please know that as your pastor, I'm praying for you this season for your comfort, for your peace. And I believe that comes as you see that the purposes and the promises of God always prevail in all things. That is the gospel. And may we run to Jesus as we exit Genesis this season. Let's pray.